Welcome back to the Spock of the Week archives. I am one of your hosts, JJ, aka the Albert Android. If you're new to the podcast, welcome, and if you're joining us once again, good to see you back. Each week in Season 1 we are bringing you our original YouTube videos in podcast form, so you can listen to us on the go, whenever you like, however you like. Please consider subscribing to us on the platform you are listening to, and if you would like to support our work, please become a patron. You can do this at www patreon.com forward slash Spock of the Week. But whatever you decide to do, we are happy to have you listening to us today. So thank you. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the second part of the original series film reviews. Please enjoy. Thank you for joining us once again. Right, so on our little journey through the cinematic history of Star Trek, the original series films, we're on to number three, which is Search for Spock. Yeah, this one is a rather interesting one when you talk about in terms of Leonard Nimoy um, and his journey through the, the films. And one of the things we didn't mention the last time was... Uh, that he wouldn't do the second film unless he was killed off in the film. And it's quite interesting how he ended up directing and starring in the third one. Uh, there's a bit of a story behind that, isn't there, guys? There is actually quite an interesting story. So uh, originally, Leonard Nimmer only agreed to do The Wrath of Khan if they killed off the character of Spock. Now, apparently that whole idea w- w- was actually leaked to the fan base and they had such an uproar about it, which took him to completely blindsided, so they actually agreed to do Search for Spock while they were still doing Wrath of Khan and they found a way, that that's why the mechanism is in there, that he can come back at the very end of 2, he puts his catcher into McCoy and you do kind of like, oh, what's that all about? So apparently at a convention that was held, Gene Roddenberry's secretary let slip that although he had died at the end of Wrath of Khan, it's okay because he comes back in the next film. <laughs> to which the fan base was clearly very happy, the studio executive not quite so much because she'd let slip a massive spoiler and they did in fact threaten to sack the secretary, but for the fact that Roddenberry was actually one of his many affairs was with that secretary and he stood up for her and said no, she stays or I go. There you have it. So there was quite a few fans had a, a, an early heads up that Spock was going to come back in some guise and somebody nearly had their head roll over it. And it's it's quite it's it's quite interesting. I like the idea that the whole uh, when they left the uh, Genesis, the, you know, he um, is it basically regenerated from you know what was left on the what, what landed on the planet and it's that whole journey for him coming back because it's like there's a very deadpan even for a Vulcan there's a very deadpan Spock at the beginning of this because he's mm. it's like it's almost like he's out of time if that makes any sense like he's I think what's interesting here is that it's obviously the the, the storyline is that his body was placed on the Genesis planet because he was torpedoed in space. His body was torpedoed. It lands on the Genesis planet during the Genesis process on the planet yeah. itself. So it regenerates all life, including what it found of Spock's remains, but it's gone way back to the very beginning with, with that one. So what I think is happening here is that as it's regenerating him, because he doesn't have, although he is obviously genetically half human, half Vulcan, his mother isn't present as a, as a force 
in his actual development, which is obviously accelerated by the Genesis plant, which is a slight issue which we come to later in the film. Yeah. So he ages much faster. But he has no human element to his kind of his, his regeneration, so he becomes much more Vulcan. And that's all there is. And obviously his catcher is elsewhere in the mind of a man who's now clinically insane and been put in a sanitarium because they think he's bonkers. Without that, he is just literally this logical being. It's, it's an, you know, for me, it's not, I mean, I enjoy watching the film, but it's not one of my favourites, to be honest. It's going to be, as at the Gregor, it's one of your particular favourites, isn't mm, it? I've never quite understood the mantra that came out of the first six movies, that the even-numbered ones were good and the odd-numbered mm. ones were bad, because I've never understood why The Search for Spock was lumped in with one in five. I've never quite understood that, because I think it's better than mm-hmm. that. And it obviously it forms a middle section of what became you know, a series of three, a trilogy. You know, two, three, and four is essentially you could watch them back to back as one mm-hmm. film. That is a trilogy of movies. But I also, I mean, I mentioned earlier briefly about Intercentrics earlier and how Jerry Goldsmith gave us the iconic Star Trek theme that probably supersedes even the original series theme now when people think of Star Trek. We had a complete change of direction with um, James Horner's um, much more naval and Horn Hornblower, Captain Hornblower type um, soundtrack that we had. In, in the Wrath of Khan. And what, what we got from the search for Spot for me is the real deep dive into what the Klingons, the Klingons were about. Mm-hmm. We'd had the Klingons in a couple of episodes of the um, original series where they were baddies and they didn't have ridge foreheads, but we had this warrior race on the bird of praise you know, out seeking honour. You know, honour was, was all about the honour and played with great Gusto by Christopher Lloyd. And yes. It's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. I, I mean, that is, when I think of Klingons now, those are, you know, that Christopher Lloyd's the first Klingon I think of. Yeah, that's a Klingon. You know, and that's not to disrespect what William Campbell, John Kilocus, and who's the core calf and Kang trio from the original series. Oh, John Solosis, William Campbell. Uh, I can't remember the third guy. We'll come back to you. I'll come back to you. Um, but, that, you know, Christopher Lloyd's Kang. Is it Kang? That's the one I remember. Mm. I really think, yeah, that's a clean one. Yeah. And I, I absolutely love that the spine-chilling moment is the, obviously the, the stealing intelligence. The, the, the opening is them stealing the intelligence about Genesis and there's, there's the, the, the female who gets a hold of it for him and she passes it over and he says to her, did you watch it? And she's like, yes. He says, oh, that's unfortunate. Do you, do you know what that means? And she's kind of like, yeah. And she's, she stands, she doesn't even try to deny it or to escape in any way. She just literally stands there and like, well, that's us, we're going to get executed because we, we broke the rules. And it's, it's that, that whole honour thing and you just feel like, wow, they, they just literally blew up that whole, wow, okay. They're, yeah, they're bad. Yeah, it's it's um I mean for me I have to agree with Gregor on the the whole Klingon I mean with Christopher Lloyd and stuff like that I mean I mean to my shame I uh, until very recently I actually forgot Christopher Lloyd did play uh, a Klingon and uh, there is a, an interesting point we'll get into on the next one about Christopher Lloyd that I like to uh, I like to think is a bit of a, a funny crossover connection but we'll we'll do that a bit later on but yeah it's. Uh, it's a good film, but like I say, it's not one of my favourites, so... Uh, I think it's, it's better. I've rewatched it over the years, because my favourite was always two, and then latter years, six, because I saw from four onwards, I actually saw them all at the movies from four on, and um, that showed me at my age now. 
I've rewatched three, and actually, it is very good. It it definitely grows on you. There's an awful lot in it, and I, th- I think the the humour comes back into it a bit more mm-hmm. as well with the with the when they steal the Enterprise that and there's that whole just just the the, the storyline of the fact that they would do that for a friend and they just, it, there's it, no questions yeah. asked. They're just kind of you know because because um, sorry not Spock uh, Kirk gets a visit from Sarek and Sarek explains. That obviously there hadn't been enough time to for Spock to explain to anybody around them because Scotty was incapacitated. He'd obviously put his catcher into McCoy, and once they find out, there's and he, he gets in touch with the rest of the crew and they just drop everything. They put their jobs on the line because they are effectively committing treason by stealing the Enterprise to go and rescue him. He, he tries to go through the correct channels and they say no, it's a no-go area. You, you can't. It's not happening. And then the rest of them are just kind of like, of course, That's, uh, would never, you know, it doesn't even cross their minds to say, oh, this is a bit dangerous. They're just kind of like, yeah, well, we're doing it because Spock's one of us. And I think, I think that brings back the, that's the tie-in for me, the human element of, of Star Trek is that, yes, we're more evolved as a society, as a, you know, as a, as a, you know, as a species, but we still have that, um, that human element is like, well, to hell with the orders, to hell with the rules. This, you know, this guy's part family. He's, you know, he's our brother essentially. Let's get in there and get this guy. You know. And, and I love, I love the little lines. You know, like, don't call me shorty. And the whole, the whole, you know, Uhura, where she's like, yeah, you, you want an adventure? Here you go, you can sit in the cupboard. <laughs> I, I think there's actually a lot of stuff that comes out of Star Trek Three into the wider. Um, Star Trek universe. I mentioned obviously about uh, the Klingons as we now think of the Klingon uh, race. Um, for a start, that, that, that was there. We see an Excelsior class for the first time. We see the space station orbit and Earth yep. for the first time. These are all things that then, you know, permeated its way through the wider Star Trek universe and later films and indeed the TV series. Um, you know, right to, down to the, the Klingon stuff that comes back on uh, Enterprise. It's fantastic. You know, that's all, that's all the genesis of that is all in Star Trek 3. It's, it's brilliant. Uh, so we're going to move quickly on to number four. So we'll be back in just a few ticks. Okay, so my personal favourite now, the fourth film, The Voyage Home. Yes. Yes, I remember where we parked it because we will be talking about this later on as well in future episodes. It has to be for me the best one because it really does encapsulate the dynamic between Spock, Kirk, uh, Chekhov, and Uhura. This the and and there's there's just enough comedy in the film that it brings you back to to that sort of that dynamic and I absolutely love that. I mean. As I mentioned earlier on, there was something regarding Christopher Lloyd. Chris, this is the second time in the movie world that Christopher Lloyd has lost a time machine. <laughs> Technically, a Klingon warbird isn't a time machine, but in this film they did indeed use it as a time machine slingshotting around the sun. Um, and we did discuss this in detail in a previous podcast with uh, one, of, uh, one of our good friends from the uh, Earl Grey podcast. So if you want to listen to that, go back into history and uh, have a look at some of our early ones but yes we're here to talk about this film so you guys what to what do we reckon it's we a, saved the whales it's a fan favorite isn't it it's just a it's a it's a lovely light-hearted movie 
we've we've had two pretty heavy duty ones where we you know in, in two we saw death of a massive character in three we also had a death not a massive character however an important character to to kirk so for just just from start to finish what an absolute laugh but trivia checkpoint here's a fun, some fun trivia for you the chap in the um the bus incident as we'll call it where the the, um, well, the punk, the, the punk the on punk. the bus with the very loud music yep. who spoke just the Vulcan pinch to, he actually reappears in a Marvel movie. He's in Spider-Man. Oh, well, there you go, folks. So, you heard it here. Yeah. Uh, it's the, the exact same chappy. He actually complains about somebody's loud music. He leans out of a window in Spider-Man and complains about loud music. So there you go. Just a, just a little maybe. bit of trivia for you. But a I little think it's bit quite of cool. there, maybe. I, th- I think it was. I think it's quite a cool one. But yeah, um, Gregor. But yeah, <clears throat> great fun, great movie. Um, oh, Leonard Nimoy obviously directed um, the search for Spock and had a, had a little bit of the shackles on from the studio keeping an eye on him, but the search for Spock did okay. So um, off he went. Nimoy said, "It's your show now. You you go and do it." And he did, and he, he ran with it. And you know, interestingly, you know, in 1986, he was responsible for two of the top ten grossing movies of the year. One being the the Voyage Home, another one being um, Three Men and a Little Baby. Um, so yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he was in a real purple patch creatively at that point. But yeah, I mean, obviously there's some themes in uh, the Voyage Home. Obviously, saving the bales. There's an environmental element there in terms of everything around us. We need to survive and etc. We need to look after um, the environment that we we've lost. Um, there's the there's some great comic moments, but obviously the, the crew, and it's in essence the crew is they're back home, but they're out of time, so they're in essence they are on an alien world. It's alien to them, everything that's going around them. And then you know, one of the great things is the check off in his Russian accent and nuclear weapons. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it. you know it's, and it's great stuff. And then coming back to that point I made earlier in the, the recording today about the, the expanded Star Trek universe, we see a bit more of that here because we see Admiral Cartwright, we see the President of the Federation, so they're, they're building, at this stage, Star Trek's really starting to build all these layers because we're getting pretty close to the launch of TNG in terms of Star Trek overall now in 1986. Mm-hmm. So they're building all these layers in this you know, enormous expanded universe that we're aware of now within Star Trek, and you can see it all building there. Great stuff. And actually, um, Nicholas Meyer was also an uncredited writer in The Voyage Home. Okay, that's something I didn't know, so uh, even I learn things on this show, folks. It's brilliant. Um, But yeah, I mean, you mentioned the comedy and stuff like that, and the comedy moments. My personal favourite, other than the uh, uh, Chekhov and the nuclear vessels and Scotty, um, when he's trying to get the materials required to build the tank. Transparent aluminium. Yeah, and he's he's there, and he's, he's, he's got the mouse in his hand, and he's going, computer... Mm-hmm. You know, he says he's, he's talking to it digitally. He goes, "No, try this," and he goes, "Computer," <laughs> and then so maybe you should try this. And he goes, "Oh, how quaint!" And then, and, it's, and, and that's the amazing thing that it's sort of it's funny, but it's like he knows what to do with the keyboard. 
but how did he not know what to do with the mouse? You know, it's, yeah. It's but it's it's the comedy of it that sort of saves that little moment. But it's it is it's brilliant. Now, you see, I thought your favourite moment might have been the bit where they try and get on the bus to go to the the um, the aquarium where the whales are, and they get kicked off the bus with the what is the meaning the exact change. You know something, yeah. Um, to my shame, I thought you were just just my God. Exactly. To my to my shame, yes. Um, <laughs> it is a great moment, but I have to say that uh, on on that analysis alone, it, it wouldn't. It's not my favourite moment, but it is a it is a good moment. It's like the comedy of them getting on the bus and then it's just it's immediately off. walking like, okay, yeah. well. Yeah, and it's, it's Spock that says it. If it wouldn't work any other way, if Spock hadn't said it, he has some brilliant lines in the the, the whole thing. Uh, just fantastic. And but fun, funnily, as you mentioned the the, the the transparent aluminium though, because the the chap in that one, we've we've actually seen a legendary cosplay in Vegas mm. of a chap who dressed up as the the guy at the aluminium plants, the one who just quit smoking. Well, Not very Marjorie. And do you know what? Everybody recognised him immediately. The guy just wore uh, a shirt with a tie a, and a, a, a plain kind of tan cardigan and a badge saying, I quit smoking today, and was going walking around with a mouse in his hand, and everybody went, Boyd home. Immediately recognisable. And there's such a tiny character in it, though. That, yeah. But they still knew it. And I thought that was absolutely hilarious. I mean, that, that, I mean I've seen that a few times at co- conventions where people have... And I'd love to see that where people dress up the more uh, lesser-known characters. Yeah, the, the, the fringe characters from the entire movie is a tiny bit part of it, but everybody immediately knew who it was. And it's, it stands out for... Because everybody dresses as Kirk, everybody yeah. does Spark, you know, it's, but it's nice to see them. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the whole storyline of how this, uh, this alien ship comes comes back to because it was communicating with mm. the whales in the past and yes. they come to the future and that's what sort of there's like the, where are you and it's not I don't know if it's intentionally destroying the earth but it's it's, it's looking for the signal because the, 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 the probe is basically looking for a response to the signal and because it's not finding it, it's 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 not meaning to be destructive, but it's being destructive it's in, being destructive in that sense. But the yeah. really interesting thing I found with that was the point they were making, where it was like the probe is looking to, to communicate with intelligent life, and everybody's going, well, like that would be humans. It's like, well, actually, no. The humpback whales are intelligent life forms, and it, it gets and me that's thinking. what the probe's trying to communicate with, and everybody else is just kind of completely irrelevant, and it maybe brought home to a lot of people how important marine life actually is because they're so much older than human life and incredibly intelligent but we just can't communicate with them and that's the point the probe could we can't doesn't mean they're not intelligent exactly exactly i mean intelligence is is um is measured on so many different levels i mean communication shouldn't be i mean look at me i mean i can't communicate for love no money but you know it doesn't mean i'm not an intelligent life form Oh, sorry, we need to argue that. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Right, 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 sorry. <laughs> I'm, taking, yeah, but, I'm taking the fifth. I don't want to credit myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, see him sitting on his hands there is hilarious. But yeah, it, it's, it's a great film for that. It's just that light-hearted, let's have a look at ourselves. You really, really, even back then, we really need to look at this. I think that's that was a very welcome break from serious strong storylines. I mean, it wasn't a bad storyline in 4, but it was a definite break away from the seriousness and the deep 
thought of the you know the, the previous three. I don't think I think it had a quite a serious undertone of ecological it did. importance, it did. but it did it in a delivered way, yeah. In a brilliant fashion and so many quotable quotes from it. You could literally go on all day with some of the hilarious quotes that came out of that one. Oh, I mean, oh, I mean, there's one. I mean, I'm actually, to be fair, I'm actually looking at one right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, live, live long and prosper, and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll move nicely on to uh, yes, um, Gregor's favourite effort. Yes. Yes, uh, five. We'll find out what God needs with a starship. <laughs> We're back in two ticks. So yes, uh, here we are, uh, back again, five, right, um, I mean I have to be honest with you right now guys, um, I haven't really watched a lot of five and six, so Greg and Sarah are going to take the lead a, a little bit on the next two, but I have seen the film, it's, it's interesting, I mean Spock has a half brother? Yes, and, and apparently a half-sister in, in the later version we'll check, but uh, yeah, Five, which is the the Final Frontier, sorry, um, Final Frontier, so this one is all, it's it's an interesting one, this is directed by Shatner, so we've had two by Leonard Nimoy, and this is now Shatner, the, the story was actually quite a good one, uh, if you read the novelisation of it, it goes into a lot more detail, I think one of the unfortunate problems which Shatner does talk about a lot in his interviews is that they had a limited budget, they had to do a lot of reshoots, and they ran out of money. So they never quite got the film he wanted out of this, yeah. uh, which is uh, an unfor- unfortunate problem, because it's a very interesting question about what is God and what is your belief system. So it's it's, it's fascinating. And it does see the introduction of, of a, a side to Spock that we've never seen before, and that he has a, a, a half-brother, which is a pain to point out, he's a half-brother, called Cybok, who is a full Vulcan. <coughs> does this mean I can never leave? <laughs> we... Yeah, that's it. <laughs> You're going to cut that bit, are we? You're so, you're so isolating the horse now. Damn. <laughs> Okay, so um, don't worry, folks. It was just something went down the wrong hole, as we say in Yorkshire. It's a KP dry rusty peanut. <laughs> so I, I, I think Five is, is much misaligned, actually, it, as a as a movie. People often try to forget it. There is the legend that the odd numbers are not as good as the even films. It's actually a good story, and there are some fabulously humorous moments in this because we have a horror distracting the guards on number three by doing the striptease in her song which is actually Michelle Nichols singing by the way and she has got an amazing voice as well as a beautiful body Um, and some fabulous moments where Scotty is wandering along and he's he's, at this point the Enterprise has has been infiltrated by Cyborg and he's starting one by one to get the crew around to his cult thinking and Scotty is part part of the resistance force and he's going don't worry I know this ship like the back of my hand as he then smashes his head into it I've seen that that bit on uh... which is absolutely legendary and and then he falls by the wayside as well so some lovely moments and I think that is a really important one um, because the final resistance is basically that, that same triumvirate of Kirk, Spock and McCoy as we see him attempt to convert McCoy to his way of thinking and he brings back the memory of the death of his father which we find out that McCoy actually euthanises his father as he's suffering from a terminal illness 
Um, and shortly after his death, they actually find a cure for the illness he was suffering from. And Cyborg wants to use that as this mechanism to bring McCoy into his... So his something cult. he wrestles with and he plays on that, yeah. It, it, it's his feeling that, you know, that, that was that wrong moment. And then Kirk interjects with this, like, no, this this is what life is about. This is, you know, should I have turned right and when I went I turned left? What, what, what if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? That's the point. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we see that later on, to, to quote a very famous Picard quote, is you... Often you, you can do everything correctly, commit no errors, and still be wrong. And that's not a mistake, that's human life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's the way it was. And Kirk kind of brings back his friend, and obviously Spock completely was a cyber because his, his logic takes over with, with that. Um, but they eventually move on to find this legendary shakari planet where God is meant to inhabit, and it's all... That, that's where it all starts to go a little bit awry. Yeah, I mean, from uh, from what I did watch of it, because it's not a film I've watched multiple times, but I have watched it at least once, and I do remember that bit. And it, and it's the bit, uh, unfortunately for me, and it's I think it's why I don't go back to the film. It, it's that bit that sticks with me. It's like the whole God. What does God need with us? You know, he's supposed to be an omnipotent. Well, I can never say that word, by the way. I do apologise. Um, but you know, he's a being that can be everywhere at all times, at all places. Um, what does he need with a starship? And it's even though Kirk does um, sort of immediately question, you know, like hang on a minute, what the, what's God want with a starship? It, it's it does it smacks a little bit of just no. This is a little bit. Even for Star Trek, this is a little bit too... Well, I think they're actually revisiting an original series episode in some manner. I don't know if you remember the original series episode, Who Mourns for Adonis? Which is a very similar premise in that they find this ancient Greek god who people stopped believing in and they lost their powers. And this is a very similar situation in that this godlike being has been marooned on a planet because people no longer believed and he, he somehow managed to capture the mind of Cyborg and convince him set me free, set me free. So it's more of a, a level of what do you consider God to be? You know, you, you have the pantheism belief of McCoy where it's like God's actually in, in the detail of the, you know, the, the, the rules of the universe, which is quite a Richard Feynman kind of belief system as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, earthbound physicist who's sadly no longer with us but I think it's more it's, it's about the concept about what what do you your, your belief is um what, what, do we, what do you think dear oh you're letting him speak let's not pretend Star Trek 5 the final frontier is never going to go down as a classic no in the, the movie franchise if you've ever read the book that was written by William Shatner's daughter about the making of the movie it does throw a different light on the movie in terms of what he was trying to achieve and what was actually produced finally and what was executed. There is a gem of an idea in there. It's just, it's not that well executed. I mean, I saw the movie in the theatre years ago. I thought, well, that was okay, but it certainly wasn't great. But I think it, now, through time, if you're a Star Trek fan and you watch Star Trek Five now, it does have a place in your heart because it's become one of those things where, yeah, it's not, it's not classic, it's got mistakes in it, it's not great, but there is a lot of fun in it. And it's like a lot of the episodes that are bad, you actually enjoy the bad episodes. 
you, you enjoy the the fact that the aim for the bullseye and they've completely missed it, but they're still fun and mm-hmm. and watching that, watching the uh, you know for want of a better phrase, the so bad it's good aspect of it. You're never going to put Star Trek V out there as a film that a non-Trek fan should watch to get them into no, the franchise. No, no, I, mean, no. It, I think it would put them all well, if you're a Star Trek, If you're a Star Trek fan, there's enough in there. It's never going to be your favourite film, but there's enough in there where you watch it. Oh, God, it's really bad, but I still quite enjoy it. It, it took all the fun elements of four um, and it took them forward because you, you got the... Where Chekhov and Sulu were lost in the wilderness and they won't admit they're lost because that's what men do. They don't admit they're lost. They won't ask for directions and who is kind of wise to them with the trying, They're doing the whole fake, ooh, look at this, ooh, ooh, storm coming, storm, storm. And who is like, guys, I've got your coordinates. I'm just going to be near board for goodness sakes, you know. It's like, calm she, down. She's, she's, she's got the wind of them and she's like, she's, she's, I'm not going to blow your story here, but I, I figured out that you, you're completely lost. You have no idea what's going on. And then Kurt climbing the mountain because it's there, and Spock just not understanding the toasted marshmallows around the, around the campfire. We we got that camaraderie back. We got that fantastic um, gelling of the, the the characters back again. And there were some fabulous fun elements. It's just it it is one that just missed the mark, and it's it's unfortunate because if you hear Shatton speak about it, he had so many fantastic ideas for it. They just didn't have the budget. The reshoots cost them a lot of money, and in the end, he's not actually as proud of that product as he as he could have been. And a lot of that is, is just due to the fact that they they had deadlines they they couldn't meet. And it's but I I actually there's a, there's a lot of gems in it. It's 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 interesting. And the concept of it is very interesting, but it's mm, just yeah, just doesn't get brought to the screen quite as easily. So you think uh, possibly my um, not dislike of it, but my lack of interest in it. Do you think that could possibly be because of the bud, you know, because he wasn't able to do what he wanted to do with the story? Do you think it could have yeah. been? Um, do you think it could have been better had he been given a, an open checkbook and said, right, do your film? It could have been a better film, it could have been better writing, bigger budget, different director, there's any number of things that could have made it a better film. But in terms of your personal experience, if you go into it looking for a, a classic Star Trek movie, mm-hmm. that's not what you're going to get. By now it is the fifth movie, so we're getting into a lot of films. You don't go into every episode of Star Trek expecting it to be the best of both worlds. Or City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, you know, you, you, you really don't. You know, you don't expect every episode to be a classic. Mm-hmm. And along the way you get some um, stinkers, but you still enjoy them in and of themselves because they're part of Star Trek. And Star Trek V, for me, is a movie that falls into that category. You know, it, it's, a, it's a threshold. It's a mask. It's, you know, that it's a terrible, you know. But it's not as bad as Code of Honor. Mm, okay, well that is a different discussion for a different time, I believe, and that'd be a good point to move nicely and swiftly on to the final full original series movie, uh, number six. Uh, we'll be back in a little tick. Undiscovered country. Yeah. Um, now we were talking off camera and. You, uh, Sarah, believe that this is the the Star Trek film. This is one. Of, this is one where I struggle to pick a favourite Star Trek film between two and six. Interestingly enough, both of them involve Nicholas Mayer as a, as a writer. Mm-hmm. 
So maybe that's why he's that good. But but yeah, Undiscovered Country wraps up so many things rather beautifully. It's it's fantastic. Um, the motif throughout this one, as Nick Spice seems to bring motifs, is, is in The Wrath of Kani had Moby Dick and Tale of Two Cities. In this one, it seems to be Hamlet and the Undiscovered Country, which is a kind of a, a motif that runs through it in terms of the the pact that they're trying to form with the, the Klingons as well as, well as the, the, the comfort level that they have with the idea of doing that. It's a huge change for everybody and the fact that Kirk, who is so, shall we say, anti-Klingon and also Scotty, um, are the, the ones to try and actually broker peace between them is an interesting place to go to. I agree. I mean, it's it certainly makes for an interesting um, an interesting film when the... Uh, you know, the people with the biggest prejudices are the ones that are there to sort of, uh, you know, broker the piece. Um, I mean, it's it's a film I haven't watched for a long, long time. And again, speaking to you off camera, it, I want to go back and watch it again because, you know, the... I mean, totally should. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful... And I, I, I actually also love the finale of it, which, spoiler alert, but at, at the very end of it, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping a huge amount of content here, but just that my, my favourite moment at the very end of it, when everything's been sorted and everybody's, it, it, they're happy and they're all back on the Enterprise and everybody's back together and then Uhura says, oh, we've, we've just had a, a, a communication from Starfleet where, where to report for our decommissioning. And obviously that's like, what's what, 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 the what? yeah like it's over it's all done and obviously the next generation w- was in full swing at this point so we'd already handed over the baton and it was quite an emotional moment but then they turned to spock and he's his words are if i were human my response would be go to hell if i were human and it's just that little interjection there, and then it pans back to Kirk, and he say, you know, he he turns to check off as soon as obviously now on his own command, he's captain in his own right, and he says, second star to the right and straight until morning, which for those who know, is a, a Peter Pan reference for the boy who never grew up, which is exactly how I think of Kirk as the boy it who is never a, grew it's up, a good and they just go yeah. in this just just this end, endless, you know, they just disappear into the sunset with the starship and I just think yeah that that's him he was that boy who's just gallivanting around the galaxy for the rest of his life that's how I remember him and it's a beautiful ending and it's a beautiful handing over of the baton as well as the 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 end that and then he does this piece to camera at the very end as the the credits roll and he's kind of like well there's a new generation will take over the enterprise and things will move on and it's it's beautifully done it's fantastic yeah what do you think, Dave? Oh, yes. Wow, wow, wow. You know, back, back at, you know, Star Trek being at the very top of its game with this film. Um, you know, we've got Nicholas Meyer at the helm again in the director's chair. He co-wrote the film with Denny Martin Flynn. And right from the off, it's just fantastic. From Cliff Hagelman's hugely underrated score, the, the opening piece, or the opening theme mm-hmm. inspired by Gustav Holst's The Planets, nice. the explosion right after that of the Klingon Moon Praxis, which was a metaphor for Chernobyl and that led to the collapse of the, the Soviet Empire. So the whole story itself is a metaphor for the collapse of the Soviet Empire. Tapping back into that original series concept of the Klingons being the Russians. Um, 
you know, that's great, and you've got Kirk reconciling his prejudice with the, the, the Klingons because of the death of his son, his own prejudice, the, the, the great popular reference that they make at the time about Nixon being the only guy that could go to China in the film, back to the expanded universe, you've got Admiral Cartwright back in it. So it's, it's, it, it, it's fantastic the way it's just built all up on that. You've got some fantastic scenes when, after the assassination of the Klingon Chancellor and McCoy and Kirk are arrested and end up on the prison planet. And then you've got David Bowie's wife, Iron Man, turning up as a character called Marta, who helps him escape, who turns out to double-cross them, who's a shapeshifter. It's just, you know, we've got Kim Cattrall in her pre-sex in the city days, who plays a character called Valaris, but was initially Nicholas Meyer's concept of that character was was going to be Savick, which would have been a great square in the circle of uh, Savick's mm-hmm. storyline, but would have meant neither Robin Curtis or Kirstie Alley were available to play the character. And Nicholas Meyer said we can't have a third actress playing this character, so they, they renamed her um, Valaris. But I think that would have been made the film even better. The Spock Savick relationship. And the betrayal would have made the film even better. And of course, as Sarah's spoken about, the end of it, um, it's just fantastic. It's, you know, Star Trek really back in top form. And let's not underestimate the impact that Star Trek has had on popular culture. The biggest movie franchise in the world at the moment is Marvel. Star Trek VI finishes with the main cast all signing off to the theme tune across the screen. You see their signatures appearing, same as you do in Endgame. It's a wonderful and Kevin uh, Frank, yeah. yeah. Kevin Feige has said Star Trek VI was where he got the idea for that. He's also said that Star Trek VI is where he, uh, sorry, the next generation, the best, no. Last use, your, use your words. Best, not the best of both worlds. Uh, all good things from the yes. next generation. The triple timeline story in that was the inspiration for the basis of the story that he wrote, uh, that they came up with for Avengers Endgame. So, yeah, I mean, what a, what a cultural impact to have that, you know, somebody like Kevin Feige takes it and runs with it. I mean, um, there's, well, it's, it's, it's amazing. There's, a, there's amazing. a lot of influence. I mean, that's something we can talk about in the future um, is how much influence Star Trek has had over films and the film industry and life in general and our lives in general, you know, so that's a, that's a whole... For me... It's a great ending, you know, for 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 the you know for the crew of the Enterprise. I mean, as for a, I mean, what was needed was a was a handing over of the baton. As you say, TNG was fully in swing, yeah. but they needed to hand over, you know, the reins, so to speak, and they, and they do that in um, generations, which we'll speak about um, in the future. Um, but yeah, I mean, this one for me, I've, it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. But yeah, and it's it's the first time we hear the name Worf as well, isn't it? Um, yes, his his ancestor features um, as a, as a defence attorney, if, if there is such a thing, in the the Klingon um, trial of Kirk. Of Kirk and it's McCoy. actually Michael Dorn that. Uh, yes, it's, it's it, Michael yeah. Dorn plays it, and he is actually playing an ancestor because they'd already got Worf on 
the bridge of the the new enterprise in TNG. So there there was there was the link there, um, and it's an interesting one. But I also love the the fact that there's still the humour in it as well, because even when they're on trial and they, they kind of say, you know, what's your current status to McCoy? Like, well, apart from a touch of arthritis, and you know, <laughs> he's still got it, even though he's facing this horrific moment. He's still got his humour there into. And there's a lovely scene as well where they're playing detective back on the Enterprise trying to solve what really happened because they're obviously framed for the death of Chancellor yeah. Gokon, which they, they didn't do. And they're trying to figure out, well, what really happened? We've got full complement of torpedoes, but the database says we find so what happened. And Chekhov chases back the moon boots and he's kind of like, right, well, I've found the moon boots that were used to go across and... and Old Russian fairy tales. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the ones who executed the Chancellor, he's found the boots, but he's then talked about his old Russian fairy tale, which says, if the shoe fits, and then there's this moment where who's kind of like, oh, for God's sakes, and they're all going, <clears throat> and they look down, and the, the alien's feet, this, these webbed feet, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so for a conventional kind of humanoid feet, and they're all kind of like, oh, right, okay, oops, unfortunate. Um, and he's obviously referencing Cinderella, because it comes back to the original series, everything came from Mother Russia. <laughs> so it's it's still there. So it's fantastic, and yeah, it, it, it hands it over quite beautifully at the, at the, the very end, as, as Greg has already mentioned, that, that sign-off. It's a great sign-off, it is a great sign-off. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful ending, and the way that they, they leave, they don't just get retired or decommissioned. They, you know, you'd like to imagine that they just run away with the ship and have more adventures and go, go into space, yeah. So when he, when he just, it's that final line where he's like, second star to the right, straight into it. a sweet moment, isn't it? It's, it really Thank you for listening to Spock a Week. If you like what you are listening to and you would like to continue, please subscribe on the capture of your choice. Also, if you would like to become a Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash Spock Week. We'd be happy for your support, but we're so glad that you're listening to us anyway. Big shout out to all our listeners across the world, from the United States, here in the UK, from Germany, and also from Hungary. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you do continue. See you next week.